You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Ambassador Ken Edelman. You may recognize that name. Came on the podcast before. Uh, the ambassador is one of the most brilliant men I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And that's for sure. And I did get to meet him because he was nice enough to invite me out for a day in Washington, DC several months ago. Uh, he is arms control director. He was UN ambassador and arms control director for president Ronald Reagan. He's also an author and a lecturer and a Shakespearean esque Shakespeare expert. How about that? Did I get that right, Mr. Ambassador? It's certainly an advocate for Shakespeare. <laughs> We've taught Shakespeare for years, and I've taught Shakespeare for years. But to say I'm an expert, I think is overselling it, Robert. But I'm happy that you oversell rather than undersell things. I do PR for a living, sir. We err on the side of oversell. And you do a great job. And you do a great job on your podcast. It's one of my favorites, and I listen to every one. That's very kind. How does he have time to read all these books? God, it's just awesome. <laughs> when you really don't do much else, reading fill is a way to fill the void. Uh, Ambassador Edelman is coming on the podcast today for a, a relatively long, but perhaps not too detailed discussion of the life and impact of recently deceased United States Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. It's an honor to have you on the show again, sir. Thank you much. Let's get right into it. I actually read the book, The World Restored, that uh, Secretary Kissinger wrote 70-some years ago about Metternichian international relations and diplomacy. Uh, would you consider 
given all of your studies of foreign policy and diplomacy, would you consider Kissinger at all an original thinker when it comes to realpolitik and its effects? I think he was a deep thinker, and I think he was experienced enough in history to know probably there are no new ideas out there. If you study the ancients and study the balance of power in the mid-19th century, as he did, you realize that the problems that countries face are pretty much the same problems. So I think that what was surprising about Henry Kissinger is how he excelled in academia with his writing, with his teaching. He was really wonderful in academia. And then when he got to government, uh, I was in government probably 12 years, and we saw a lot of academics come in, and they didn't succeed. And they didn't succeed because they didn't know how to get things done in that unique environment of government with all the interests banging in to each other and the egos so inflated. But Kissinger took to it in January of 1969 in an amazing way. So he was a star in two respects. And I would say, Robert, a star in the third respect, which is your field of public relations. He really cared about his image. Mm -hmm. He cared about what people said about him. He was extremely sensitive for criticism. And he went out of his way always to cuddle up to those who were critics of him in a way that I've never seen done in government before. Childhood is famously tragic. His family fled. I think it's 1938. They left Germany to come to the United States, obviously due to the rise of anti-Semitism under Adolf Hitler. He went to Harvard, earned his PhD. He served in World War II, actually was awarded a Bronze Star. How much do you think that that sort of upheaval, everything he went through in the 30s and 40s, affected his view of the world? In two ways. Number one, he gave, <laughs> he had a deep appreciation of the United States and the values of the United States. He said when he was born in as Secretary of State that uh, no country on earth would take a person of his background and give them <clears throat> one of the highest position. And secondly, I think it made him extremely sensitive to being an outsider, to trying always to be an insider, because he was his childhood was such a outcast. And he told stories about he loved soccer. In fact, when Pele died, Time magazine asked Kissinger to do a big essay on Pele for a special feature. But he was sensitive about being an outsider and therefore desperate to be an insider in a way that probably someone of our background, Robert, would not be as sensitive. Did the horrors, in your opinion, did the horrors of the time that helped forge his intellect and his world outlook, did it make him see human nature in a way that I guess I'll say, wasn't benevolent. In other words, in the end, people will do what they want to do and humans will act to accumulate power and wealth and we shouldn't act like that won't happen. I know that's part of realpolitik. It's not all of it, but do you think that the sense that he saw so many terrible things made him uh, less sanguine about human nature? 
I can't say what caused it, but he was, uh, by and large, a pessimistic about uh, whether peace can last long, whether <laughs> agreements could last long, whether you could really turn the corner and have a big accomplishment like the fall of the wall or anything. He was for incremental steps. I don't know if it was because of his background, Robert, or just his disposition, but it was overall a Banglerian gloomy disposition that things are falling apart. And you meant you're referencing Oswald Spangler. Yes. Uh, he right. wrote his uh, undergraduate thesis on him and other historians, I, I believe. Did you ever have a chance to work with Dr. Kissinger? Uh, I was in the Pentagon uh, working for Don Rumsfeld, his special assistant in 75 and 76, uh, when Kissinger was Secretary of State. And uh, he and Rumsfeld had clashed quite a bit, just like he had clashed with James Schlesinger, who was the first Secretary of Defense in the Ford administration. The only time I really worked with him, we were both appointed by Don Rumsfeld in 1980, the George W. Bush administration, to the Defense Policy Board. And we were on the Defense Policy Board together, and I got to know him pretty well on that and enjoyed times together. My wife and I gave a dinner for him at our house. That was a great event. It wasn't a gigantic event because we didn't have a gigantic house, but it was a <laughs> notable event because he was so charming. I think we had people like Justice Scalia there and Bob Woodward and certainly the Cheneys and others. But what I really remember about it, Robert, most of all, was not just Kissinger holding forth in front of a lot of people who said you know, critical things about him. Right. Uh, but we had a Springer Spaniel dog, Cleo, and Kissinger absolutely fell in love with the dog. So once he saw the dog at the, at the door when he was coming in during the meal, he would pontificate. And then when people were looking at somebody else because they were saying something, and with a crowd like that, a lot of people were saying lots, chiming up. He would sneak something from his plate down to the dog to <laughs> Cleo and look at Cleo and get that approval from Cleo with a shake, wagging of the tail and then go back to our conversation. I noticed that. I don't know if others did, but he was quite intent on pleasing Cleo throughout the meal. And uh, so he would go back and forth over that. Uh, what I really appreciated so much, and people really don't realize it very much, Robert, is Kissinger's sense of humor. He, when we were on the policy board, he and I were having breakfast one morning in the Pentagon, and Hal Sonnenfeld, who had this funny relationship with Kissinger, they had been together in Germany and come to the United States about the same time and then work together for all these years in and out of all kinds of activities, including in the U.S. Army and academia and everything. Anyway, they had a very funny relationship. Anyway, Kissinger and I were having the breakfast. Sonnenfeld comes up and without even saying hello to either one of us, Henry, I saw you on CNN the other night, and you got the Contras mixed up with the Sandinistas. <laughs> and without 
looking at Sonnenfeld, says to me, Kenneth, Kenneth, for the last 38 years, I have been blessed by having Hal Sonnenfeld there to always remind me of my deficiencies. That just came out of him right then and there. And then he went on talking to me. And Did you read any of his books? Yes, I read books? The White House Years. Uh, I read 2,000 pages of The White House Years. And uh, they're clever and they're brilliantly written. That's another thing people don't know about Kissinger that much is uh, his writing was absolutely exceptional. We People don't realize that Winston Churchill won the Nobel Prize for literature. Okay? It's a stunning thing. But Kissinger could have won the Nobel Prize not for peace, which there wasn't that much coming out of Vietnam, but for literature because they're beautifully written and they have these little vignettes about the characters in government that come and go that are just brilliant insights. Did Dr. Kissinger read Reagan at Reykjavik? Yes, and he blurbed it in an extraordinary way. So right on the back is the big blurb from him. And he told me it was uh, just a wonderful book. It's funny because in the book, I'm critical. of. I tell some stories with Kissinger. And I said that he, when I was nominated for the arms control job in 1981 and 83, Kissinger said, meet the press face the nation, one of the two, that even though I was had been recently highly critical of him, he still supported my nomination. I wrote him a little note saying, I don't know how I was highly critical of you. I had been teaching Hamlet at Georgetown, and I have to tell <laughs> you that in my graduate course on Hamlet at Georgetown, uh, I'm afraid to tell you that your name really never came up. So <laughs> I don't know how I could uh, be critical of you at, at that time. But I also told the story that because I was so concentrated on Reagan, that I was in New York one time and he invited me to lunch at the Four Seasons. And of course, I accepted and I was very flattered. I walked in the Four Seasons a little bit early for the lunch. And I assumed that in this power restaurant where they have all kinds of corners and people discussing great deals in finance that he would want to have some cube in some little place that the two of us could talk in privacy etc no the maitre d told me dr kissinger likes this table which is the table right when everybody walks in so he could be, <laughs> he could be seen and he could see and so uh, we started to roll. We talked about some issues at the Defense Policy Board, uh, Iraq being the issue at that time. And then he rolls into Metternich and the uh, Treaty of Westphalia and all the things that uh, are in a world restored and they've written about in the past and all the great uh, leaders in history. And he rolls through these histories. And, you know, I'm, think, I'm sitting there thinking, Hell, I'm a one-man Harvard seminar. This is what he, <laughs> this is what he told all those hard Harvard seminars. And I stopped him because he was just kept talking. And I stopped him and I said, what about Ronald Reagan? He 
doesn't share any of those traits, but he seems to have accomplished a great deal. And Kissinger stopped. He remained silent for a long time, <laughs> which is probably 20 seconds, <laughs> 25 seconds. And he just looked at me with aggravation in his face. And he said, I can't explain that. Reagan is sui generis. It's mm. just, he's not like that mold in any way, which I thought was very honest of him to admit that uh, all the traits of a leader that he had outlawed, outlined in history just didn't somehow apply to Reagan. It was just, he was by himself. So it was really, it was really uh, fun to always talk to him and it was always insightful, but I can claim that I stumped him, uh, at least <laughs> saying, Reagan doesn't fit in your categories here. We used to have a governor here in the state of Indiana, rather brilliant himself. That's Mitch Daniels. And Governor Daniels would have a book list, a recommended book list that he, he would issue every year. I think my memory is correct on that. And one year, one of the books that he recommended is called Diplomacy by Henry Kissinger. I had read the book before the recommendation had come out, found it absolutely brilliant. Did you read it? And what did you think of it? First of all, I think the world of Mitch Daniels. We've uh, been friends for, since the Reagan administration. And I'm in Aspen. We had him last time he was in Aspen. We had him over for breakfast. And Carol said, oh, we'll get some piece of toast or something. And Mitch says, you know what? I like a big breakfast. So don't <laughs> I don't think he eats the rest of the day, though. He's too busy working. <laughs> uh, so don't give me just a piece of toast and a cup of coffee and think you're doing anything. All right. I want a, I want a hearty breakfast here. Yes. His writings on diplomacy are terrific. They're more case studies of situations and then insights you can get from those situations. So yes, it's a wonderful book and I can understand why Mitch would recommend it. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Ambassador Ken Edelman. We are discussing the life, writings, and impact of former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who passed away recently at the age, I believe, of 100. About some of the bigger issues that Dr. Kissinger had to deal with, for lack of a better term. He got involved in politics really in the 50s. Stayed in through the 60s where he was a an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller and that wing of the Republican Party. But in 1968, Richard Nixon wins the presidency. And in 1969, Henry Kissinger becomes national security advisor in the Nixon administration. They came to power, I think it's pretty fair to say, no Vietnam, no President Nixon. What do you think of, and this is a rather large question, we could break it down. What do you think of the problem that Kissinger and Nixon inherited and their strategy to try to cope with it, with the war in Vietnam? They desperately wanted to get out of Vietnam. That is for sure. They wanted to do it in a way that did not bring dishonor to the United States. All right. By that time, I think it was Robert 30,000 uh, Americans had died and we had been there and ground forces since 1965. 
and had been involved since, in some way since the Truman administration. So they had two goals. One was get the hell out of there. And number two, don't do it with any kind of disgrace. And as it turned out, those two goals were mutually exclusive because you just couldn't, in a dignified way, just skidoo out of Vietnam. I think the real chance was in 1969 when, you know, you could not say it because it's very unkind to say, but to give the idea, this wasn't my war. This was a war started by Kennedy and Johnson, and uh, it's taking too much of our resources. It's taking too much of our time and attention and world affairs, and therefore I'm going to pull out relatively soon. Now, their claim was, and they have some claim, and, it, it, and it's justified in a way that would imply that the United States was running away from world problems, uh, more isolationist, couldn't rely on the word of the United States, that whole litany of accusations. That's what they saw, and that's what they tried to cope with during all those years. How influential was Henry Kissinger when it came to Vietnam policy? And do you, it, it's easy to be critical now, as we, as almost everyone is, of Vietnam and Vietnam strategy. Do you get the sense that if Kissinger had a free hand, anything would have turned out different? No, I, I really don't. I don't think there was much daylight between him and Richard Nixon. <laughs> So I, I don't think that's true. Second point I would make, Robert, is that till the Tet Offensive, which is 1968, which is <laughs> Vietnam War was very uh, popular. The American people supported it. And during the initial years of Kissinger and uh, Nixon in power, the, the support was dwindling, but it was still overall pretty supportive. Um, listen, there's been a million more words written about the Vietnam War, and I have no particular insights into it. Uh, I sympathize with what they were trying to do and understand what they were trying to do, and they did what they were trying to do as, as I think, as well as it could have been done. I would have uh, stopped the war earlier, but that's what I'm saying now. God knows what I would have done at the time. But you mentioned it a few seconds ago in your answer, and that was some, that's something that comes through when anyone reads about Kissinger or Nixon, the presidency, the war, and this belief that the rest of the world would change their opinion of the United States if we had a precipitate withdrawal from Vietnam. Do you agree with that? Certainly that was true of Asian countries at the time. Certainly Singapore's president that was very close to Kissinger, Lee Kuan Yew, felt that way. Certainly in Thailand, certainly probably the Japanese did. Now, needless to say, these countries weren't contributing a lot to our effort in Vietnam. You can say, okay, uh, I don't know why you have a, a seat at the table, but the fact is the Asian countries did feel that way. The Europeans, less the British, never got involved in Vietnam with us, unlike Korea and other wars, and certainly the French opposed that. The Australians did because the Australians are always very nice and very supportive. But so I, I'm just not sure it's true. But with our main allies, it certainly was true with the Asians that we cared about. Do you remember? I think you may be old enough. 
do you remember President Nixon's address to the country when he announced that he was going to China? Yes, it was really a uh, real uh, surprise, and um, it was a master stroke, and, and he did it in a master way. And then he, uh, the Russians got mad that he was going there, and they invited him for a summit. So in 1972, he had summits in both China and uh, Russia, <laughs> Moscow, which was quite amazing. Yeah, it was a real diplomatic feat, and that's why that's probably the height of uh, the Nixon. Kissinger uh, partnership and their one of their main accomplishments for sure. And Dr. Kissinger paid played a significant role in the Absolutely. opening to China. Secret Absolutely. visits, they began to trust him. Yeah, yes, Kissinger was all in because he loved the secrecy. Um, and uh, but Nixon had written the article on foreign affairs in 1967, indicating that he was interested in opening to China. So this wasn't something that, and he didn't even know Kissinger in 1967. So this wasn't something that uh, came from Kissinger, I, I don't think. I think the opening really was um, Nixon. I've read before where, to, to your point, you're exactly right. This was Nixon's priority and not necessarily Kissinger's. But against the backdrop of the Vietnam War, is there is that a reason to believe that Kissinger warmed to the idea and this whole theory of triangular diplomacy where the United States and the Chinese are now in a quote unquote block? That's too strong a term, but certainly a bigger understanding as opposed to the 50s and 60s where it was the Soviet Union and China aligned. There were two things going on, Robert. One was that uh, it was neat to have China along with us in opposing or the Soviet Union. So there was a triangular diplomacy with her from our point of view than the duad of us versus the Soviet Union. That's for sure. And on that, Kissinger and Nixon were absolutely right. On the second point was that they felt a better relationship with China and with the Soviet Union would put enormous pressure on Hanoi to end the war more favorably on our terms, meaning more favorably keeping the Saigon government in power for X amount of time, at least having some kind of coalition government that would not be subverting the Saigon government, have some kind of withdrawal of the North Vietnamese troops in South. I have a emergence of the prisoners of war who had been in the Hanoi Hilton. On that, they were absolutely wrong. They they got it wrong. China and the Soviet Union were, I don't know if they weren't interested in helping us in Vietnam. They certainly weren't effective in helping us in Vietnam. And probably they weren't that interested. But it could have been that they were interested in Hanoi told them to buzz off. They have no business telling Hanoi what to do. And China and Vietnam eventually had several significant border clashes, I believe, That's in the right. late 70s. That was in under Carter and Deng Xiaoping. Right after Deng Xiaoping came to to the White House, that is true. The third big problem, if that's the right way to put it, was the bilateral relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union, especially as it related to arms control, nuclear proliferation. That was the big issue of the Cold War. 
how did Kissinger attack that issue in your view? And did detente, which Nixon and Kissinger made famous, did detente work? I, I, I didn't think that much of their arms control treaties. Uh, I thought that what Nixon and especially Kissinger did with SALT One and the ABM Treaty was set a limit to the growth of nuclear weapons. And more important, in my opinion, was that Ronald Reagan didn't think much of their arms control, <laughs> that what he wanted to do was a real reductions in nuclear weapons and not a lid, the amount that you could grow. And the principle was quite stark under Kissinger and Nixon and even under Carter, it was start. It was uh, SALT, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. So if you had a thousand missiles of some kind, and you had planned to go to 2,000, okay? The treaty said, no, you can only go to 1,500. All right, this is an increase, but it's a limitation on what your plans may have been, Okay. Ronald Reagan comes along and says, I don't want to do that. I want to have a real reduction in these nuclear weapons. So he started, went from SALT to START, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Secondly, I didn't think much of detente overall, and certainly Reagan criticized it a lot in 1976 when he ran against Ford, and, and Ford's Secretary of State, of course, was, was uh, Kissinger. And he said it was a one-way street. He said that the Soviets really weren't doing anything to help the world. They were they were uh, making it a, a worse place, and that our goal should be, quite simply, to win the Cold War and to say afterwards, we win, they lose. <laughs> <laughs> we win, they lose. That's that a direct the, quote, by the way. Was, yeah, that was Reagan's view. And he really didn't think much of uh, the whole detente bit. But that, that's what how he stated it, and Reagan stated it. So, so the view was a very different view that we had in the Reagan administration versus Kissinger. But during that time, I still had a, a nice relationship with Kissinger. I really admired so much of what he had done, and his wit was really outstanding. And I'll give you a great example, Robert. When Rabin was, I think, was ambassador in Washington, his son was being bar mitzvah at the Washington Hebrew Congregation downtown in Washington, D.C. And You're referencing Itzhak Rabin, who from Israel. That's right, who was later became prime minister, prime minister. assassinated. Yeah, and minister of everything, but including. But he was then ambassador. And so his son was bar mitzvah. And Kissinger, excuse me, who was Secretary of State then, and he was very nice. He went to the service at Washington Hebrew. He comes out. A reporter says, "Oh, that was that was Secretary Kissinger. That was really something that you took time to go to this bar mitzvah. Did it remind you of your bar mitzvah?" And Kissinger, without skipping a beat, says, "No, Ribbentrop didn't come to my bar mitzvah." <laughs> referencing Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was the foreign minister for uh, Nazi Germany. <laughs> so he said, no, a Ribbentrop didn't come to my barbers. Stuff like that was coming out of his mouth all the time. And it was just a fun to see him. 
he got mad at me. He, last few times I saw him, he the first greeting always was, Kenneth, you bamboozled me. And I said, okay, let, let's just drop that. I think we had enough of that. Uh, and, and what happened was that after he was out of office, after I was out of office, I was uh, one of the resources, one of the lecturers with YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. And uh, one of the guys from YPO called me up. There's going to be a cruise with uh, 800 people or something like that. And I was going to be one of the lectures, but they were trying to get Kissinger to be one of the lectures. And Kissinger, during the Christmas time, went to Dominican Republic and stayed with Oscar de la Renta at, in the compound of the Dominican Republic. And this boat was going to go right there. Okay. So I called Kissinger and I said, the boat's going to be right there. We'll go up to the compound. I'll come to the door. I'll still look at his place. I'll walk across the lawn. You lecture to the people and walk back. And he was, he said, okay, I'll do that. Even though he was on vacation and didn't need a new audience. Anyway. The day comes, the time comes, and for some reason, the Dominicans didn't give a certificate to come into the port, or the boat was too big. I don't know what it was. The boat was there and far away from where the compound was. So they had this little boat go, and I was supposed to go to Kissinger's place, get him at the front door, and put him in this little boat and go up to there. It was a terrible assignment, but everybody was hepped up to see Kissinger. Kissinger knew that he was going to talk to YPO at that time. I dreaded it. So I get in this little boat. We go in there. I get Kissinger, and he says, we start at the front door, Kenneth, where is the boat? And I said, look over there. Just look right over there. And you would see the speck on the horizon, (laughs) something that might have been a boat. And anyway, we got into the little power boat, and the sea was rough, and it was bouncing around, and Kissinger was not the most athletic person in the world. And <laughs> we got to the side of the cruise boat, and it looked like there was 11 stories up was the only way to get up there. And he said, how do, how do you propose they're going to get me up there? I said, they're going to put a rope around your stomach and haul you up. But <laughs> that, was, that wasn't the case. There was an easier way to get out there. And he was quite furious about the whole thing. And I understood why. And after his speech, but he was quite wonderful giving the speech. After the speech, one of the organizers said to me, oh, you can take him back. I said, no, it's such an honor. Why don't you take him back to the <laughs> I knew I didn't want any more of his uh, rage about me. Uh, and since that time, the four or five times I saw him after that time, each time he started, Kenneth, you bamboozled me. <laughs> so I'll go to my grave thinking I was the one guy who bamboozled Kissinger. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. 
Our guest today is Ambassador Ken Edelman. We are discussing the legacy policies and in just a second, the of Henry Kissinger. He was a celebrity, a worldwide phenomenon, for lack of a better term. Uh, do you think that was? was one of his goals we all like to squire jill st john around hollywood and various places but you mentioned earlier talking about his insecurities do you think his drive for celebrity was part and parcel of the goal to become more secure in his person yes and i think it was fun as well <laughs> unlike richard nixon and unlike those in the white house haldeman ehrlichman and all the Christian scientists and the kind of fundamentalists and the straight-laced people in the Nixon White House, Kissinger was out for a good time and good laughs, and he had more jovial personality than any of them. So the idea of celebrity, I think, was just fun for him. And it was part of his being accepted, and it was um, a hunger for people knowing who he was. I remember early on, Walter Isaacson, who has written biographies of people, including Elon Musk, most recently, he had an early biography of Kissinger, entitled Kissinger, and I think it was published in something like 04 or 05, and Kissinger hated it. He hated it because it well, he, he, capital, he he cooperated with it and it didn't yes. turn then, out to be. Then he just hated it. He just hated it because Isaacson was saying he was cynical. He lied about things. He was two faced about things and et cetera, and all of which was absolutely true. And so he wouldn't talk to Isaacson for a number of years. And finally, he was kept it being asked about the book. And he said, you know, and he said, I've said enough about that book. It's unfair, blah, blah, blah. And finally, he mellowed. And someone said, what about the Edison book? He says, to tell you the truth, I do. But then Niall Ferguson came out, the brilliant uh, historian, with, with, with a different book uh, that, that has a different tone to it, I would say. Yes, very much a different tone because Kissinger has been uh, cooperating with him uh, on the book. And I'm very interested in Henry Kissinger. I'm not sure I'm 3,000 pages interested in Henry Kissinger. This is a Herculean effort. One of the most famous episodes of Secretary Kissinger's diplomatic career involved the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Is it fair to say, would it be overstating it to say, Kissinger saved Israel from a world perspective, not about Israeli troops and, and their courage and what was going on in Israel, that Kissinger's work was dispositive to Israel coming out of that war and surviving. I don't, I think that's a little extreme, Robert. I think that he certainly helped the situation in the Middle East with his shuttle diplomacy, which was just tireless. I think that, honestly, that Richard Nixon deserves a lot of credit for insisting that there be arms sent to uh, Israel during the middle of the 73 war in such a magnitude that the Arab countries got very mad at the United States 
and had an oil embargo that really hurt the economy and hurt everybody. I remember cars lining up to go get gas at the gas station. But so I think that was a big push from Nixon. But the aftermath was uh, Kissinger going back and forth and back and forth endlessly and having a disengagement with the Egyptians uh, and the Sinai, with the Syrians, uh, and setting terms that since 1973 have held up very nicely. This was not for peace in the Middle East. These were disengagement. To have the uh, troops disengage from parts of certainly the Sinai and disengage from other parts of the Middle East. And I think it was a tremendous accomplishment. You think was going, I know you're not a psych, psychologist, but what do you think was going through or what would be going through your mind if you're Henry Kissinger, you flee Nazi Germany because of anti-Semitic uh, fascist oppression and murder, and 45 years later, you're negotiating for the survival of a Jewish state in the Middle East? I think he was uh, more negotiating for the terms that would increase the chances of peace after the 73 war not so much for the existence of the state of Israel, okay? And Israel would have existed whether they occupied the Sinai or didn't occupy the Sinai, mm -hmm. whether they had parts of uh, the Golan Heights or didn't have parts of the Golan Heights. But I think it gave him a satisfaction that, to do that. He also was in this funny, speaking of his Jewishness, funny situation, Robert, where he was in the White House um, he was, Richard Nixon uh, on the tapes has some things that are just anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. and That's putting it mildly, sir. Including some to uh, Kissinger himself. I remember we were at a dinner at uh, Don Rumsfeld's house, and uh, Kissinger was there, and Bill Sapphire was there, uh, both Jews in the Nixon administration. And I remember asking them, did you ever feel that Nixon was anti-Semitic? Did you ever feel that? And they said, no. What Nixon was talking about when he talked about the Jews doing this or the Jews doing that was the Georgetown liberal democratic uh, set, academic set and uh, not Jews so much. He, neither of them felt, felt that they were uncomfortable. But it, it's still an odd situation to be in a where the boss is spouting this, and uh, you're sitting there and have to listen to it. William Sapphire was one of Richard Nixon's uh, chief speechwriters, went That's on right. to fame as a columnist, brilliant man. Also helped Mr. Agnew from time to time. Uh, <laughs> he, wrote, he wrote some of his most inflammatory speeches. Although, well, those are sometimes the most fun ones to write. <laughs> Bill Sapphire... Bill Sapphire was a, just a really good and great guy. We got to know him well over the years. And when I was nominated to be arms control director, I got a postcard from him that I think I saved somewhere around here. And it said, Ken, you called me a few months ago. I didn't call you back because you were nobody. But now that you're somebody, <laughs> call me and I'll answer, Bill. <laughs> but Kissinger famously didn't know 
about the White House, the Oval Office taping system. I think that's true. Everything I've read that he did not know, there are only like three or four people who knew. Did you ever ask him about what was it like when you all of a sudden could hear your conversations from 1970 and you were speaking frankly because you had no idea they were being recorded? No, I I did not uh, ask him that. I wasn't smart enough to ask him that. I wish you were around to remind me, (laughs) Robert. (laughs) But what it shows in these tapes that Kissinger was just very solicitous and in a way that wasn't really needed. And would have. I've seen that behavior when, you know, I was in the Pentagon and I was, like I say, special assistant to Don Rumsfeld. And then during the Reagan administration, had a lot of meetings with the president. And these people who are solicitous, A, you understand it because you're there with the president of the United States and it's pretty special. But B, it just comes across to me anyway as just very base and unbecoming. Right, Mr. President. You're so right, Mr. President. I know. Come on. Nixon's advice to Ford when President Nixon resigns in August of 74, he gives incoming President Gerald Ford some advice. The top of the list is keep Henry Kissinger. Would you have given Ford the same advice? Oh, sure. What you wanted at a time like that was stability. You wanted a man who wasn't known around the world, Gerald Ford, who wasn't really knowledgeable about executive decision-making because he had just run a congressional office his whole life. And you wanted to have the prestige that Kissinger really did carry. So absolutely. So much of what Ronald Reagan did, you mentioned it, when he's elected president in November of 1980 through his two terms as president. So much of it seemed to be undetente to look back and say, we tried to be nice guys. The Russians cheated. They're invading countries. They're supporting Marxist revolutions in the Horn of Africa, Latin America. Was there tension between the Reagan foreign policy team and folks like Henry Kissinger? Because perhaps the president was undoing all of that popular detente policy? Oh, yes, there was. Uh, But we were in office and he was not. (laughs) There was a limit to the amount of clashing. But but when he could, he would uh, talk about uh, Reagan in a not so flattering manner. He opposed uh, the Reykjavik summit that I thought was Ronald Reagan's finest hour, certainly (laughs) the finest weekend of my life. But in the subject of the book I wrote about, but I think Reagan did a wonderful job at the Reykjavik summit, but he opposed and he criticized the Reykjavik summit very much. He criticized the arms control agreement that came out of it, the INF uh, Intermediate Nuclear Force Agreement in 87, partly because of the terms, but mostly because Henry Kissinger really never liked any negotiations that he wasn't in charge of. Okay, if you start with that premise, he's going to find something (laughs) to object to. Robert, if you were negotiating on a new loan for your house or something, some of the terms can be great. Some of them you wish they were better. Kissinger would have objected to that because he wasn't involved with it. And you'd find those elements that uh, weren't so great that you go along with 
because overall the agreement is better than just not having the agreement. Even after his resignation, Nixon in polls, the late 70s and 80s, still scored extremely high as a foreign policy president, the Nixon-Kissinger foreign policy. Uh, But I'll give you a chance here. Do you favor the outcome of what Ronald Reagan did with the Soviet Union more than you favor the outcome of what Nixon and Kissinger did with regard to the Soviet Union? No, absolutely. Reagan came and he, he was very different than Nixon, Kissinger, and even Carter in various ways. And one of them was to delegitimize the Soviet Union. And Kissinger and Nixon said, they're two superpowers. We have to get along. We don't want to blow each other up. All these kind of things. True, but so almost trivial in, in their obviousness. And Reagan came along and said, there's an evil empire, and that's who they are. And they're the focus of evil in the modern world. And the Marxism was going to end up on the heap of history. That sent Kissinger up the wall and said it was very (laughs) provocative. Secondly, Reagan wanted uh, real arms reductions and not just a limitation on future growth that the Nixon and Kissinger had. And they objected. Kissinger objected to that. It was unrealistic. The Soviets would never go along with it. It was just proclaiming that because they wouldn't ever agree to it. But that was Nixon's view and uh, Reagan's view. And uh, it came about. We got the INF Treaty eliminating an entire class of nuclear weapons and real reductions, deep, deep reductions and uh, the whole array of nuclear weapons so that the arsenals, even today, are 80% less than they were at the time of the Reykjavik summit. Reagan came up with SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars, something that Kissinger very much opposed, and as a way to get into the defense business against incoming ballistic missiles. Kissinger very much opposed it because one of his accomplishments was the EBM Treaty, that had outlawed exactly what Reagan was trying to do with with the, the AI program. So all these factors and a few more as well were very different approaches than than what uh, Kissinger and Nixon, Kissinger and Ford. And the easiest example is that in 1970, I think it was 75, it could have been 76, Solzhenitsyn came to the United States. Mm-hmm. You get a a degree from Harvard University, and uh, one of the real heroes who ever lived in writing about what the Soviet Union was really like. And uh, Kissinger was Secretary of State at the time and talked Ford into not inviting Solzhenitsyn to the White House. And Ronald Reagan absolutely went catonic at that, as he (laughs) should have, the very symbol and the writer, brilliant writer, of what the Soviet Union is really not celebrated in the West. We have just a few more minutes with Ambassador Ken Edelman. We're discussing uh, the life and legacy of former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who recently died at the age of 100. Kissinger, his post-Secretary of State life was lucrative for sure. It was still influential, as you mentioned a few minutes ago in, in some of your remarks. But it's also fair to say that that 
Kissinger as a controversial figure grew in the decades following his service at the State Department and as National Security Advisor. He's a murderer, genocide, war criminal. What do you think of that? Is that just the usual uh, hype that comes with people, or do you is there some value in criticizing Kissinger's view on human rights, which Jimmy Carter, President Carter, frequently did when he became president? I think there is a big role for human rights in U.S. foreign policy. It can't be the singular role, but it's a big role. I know that Carter made a big deal out of human rights. He was president, but he he was absolutely adoring of the Shah of Iran. And said it was the island of stability in a turbulent region and couldn't have been more faltering over the Shah of Iran after after he was out of uh, the presidency, President Bill Clinton had a hard time keeping former President Jimmy Carter away from North Korea because he loved <laughs> dealing with Kim Il Sung and and uh, the North Korea leader, Korean leadership. You couldn't get a worse human rights abuser. There, even Carter was not very good on the issue. Reagan really cared about it deeply. I remember going. And when when George Schultz and I were and others were dealing with the arms control, one time we were in Moscow in, in April, I think it had been 87, and the ambassador from the United States was going to give a Seder, a Passover service that night and asked the two of us whether we'd like to attend. And boy, would we ever. And I met this at the Seder, Schultz and I went around and and talked to people, and one guy was shaking all over, and I said, it was wrong. And he said he had been on a hunger strike for two, three days because he wanted him and his family to make that pilgrimage, like celebrated at Passover, under the Pharaoh, from freedom, from tyranny into freedom. And he had been kicked out of his job. His kids had been expelled from school. His wife had lost her job, and he was on a hunger strike. And and so it was pathetic to see him that and understand his courage in wanting to leave the Soviet Union. And he looked at me and he says, when you see President Reagan next, tell him that he's about the only thing going for us right now. He and the United States of America are about the only thing going for us right now. And that was him feeling that uh, all those who wanted to make this pilgrimage from bondage to freedom, uh, but living under the pharaohs. And the next week I was with Reagan, I told him that story, and Reagan just loved it. He absolutely loved it. He thought of the United States like that, and he was very proud that what he said about dissidents, what he said about the city on the hill, what he said about the blessings of immigrants coming to America and what the, the blessings of America really resonated so much to the dissidents in the Soviet Union. Author Christopher Hitchens, who's deceased, uh, but in his own way, a brilliant thinker, certainly a, a brilliant wit, said that Henry Kissinger was a war criminal and should have been, certainly should never have been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, but he should be tried as as a criminal if if you were on henry kissinger's defense team 
take just a few seconds and and how would you rebut that charge? Because it seems hyperbolic. I would say uh, several things. Number one is Christopher Hitchens said Mother Teresa was a evil character in the world. <laughs> Why are you going to believe this guy? Okay. And secondly, without getting into hyperbole and in a vicious, undeserved way, you can say on balance, understanding all he accomplished, Kissinger should not have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize because there wasn't peace in Vietnam when he got it. Okay. And Lee Docto, who also got was announced to get the, the Peace Prize, decided he wasn't going to accept it. Why? Because there wasn't peace in Vietnam. And Kissinger did, two years later, offer to turn it back And because Vietnam fell in April of 1975. So I think there's an argument to be made. Christopher Hitchens goes and he likes to uh, take on Mother Teresa and take on Henry Kissinger. And, and uh, it's not an admirable thing in my mind. Last question. We have a Mount Rushmore of four U.S. presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Lincoln. Would Henry Kissinger be on your Mount Rushmore of U.S. secretaries of state? And if so, who are the other three up there with him? Certainly Dean Adjustin would be up there. I would probably, because of my personal relationship and uh, time spent, would say that George Schultz would be up there. I would think that Henry Kissinger would be one of the four. And trying to think under the Monroe Doctrine. John Quincy uh, Adams? John Quincy Adams was Secretary of State, and, and Monroe didn't understand what was going on, <laughs> as I understand it. And John Quincy Adams said, even though I would, I would say fewer than one-tenth of one percent of those at Mount Rushmore would ever recognize John Quincy Adams or knew he existed or knew he was later president of the United States. Uh, or they wouldn't recognize Dean Atchison or George Schultz either. So, uh, But Henry Kissinger would be on your Mount Rushmore. Yeah, of I think on balance what he did, especially in the Middle East, and on balance his attempts to um, the triangular, the opening of China, the triangular relationship with the Soviet Union. Yes, uh, he deserves that. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NF a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Ambassador Ken Edelman, came back on to discuss the life, the career, the impact, the legacy of recently deceased Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Ambassador Edelman, you are as brilliant as you are generous, and I'm just thrilled to get a chance you're sounding to talk like, with you again. Robert, you're sounding like Kissinger in the Oval Office with Nixon. Yeah, but you're not paying me. 
<laughs> it's all for free. I love the podcast and I love your questions. And I love to do it with the uh, Reagan and Reykjavik book because uh, there were so many great stories that you picked up uh, in the book that I enjoy talking about. That's for sure. It's an absolutely marvelous book. Thank you so much for your time today. And I hope I get to interview you yet again. Okay, Robert. Very good. Happy trails to you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.